Lord, please open our hearts and minds to receive from your word this morning, that we might grow in Christ, that we might live kingdom-first lives. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Please be seated. I graduated with my bachelor's degree in 1996, and I still remember the day that I graduated. One of the things that I recall were the strawberries. I was in California, Northern California, and the strawberries that they get are like this big. I mean, they look, they're the size of a baseball. They were amazing, and they taste as good as they look. And I remember those strawberries. The other thing I remember is sitting there waiting for that moment when I was going to walk up and they were going to call my name, they were going to hand me this diploma, because I remember thinking, this is a long time coming. There was a lot put into this. You know, and sometimes I was working really, really hard, sometimes I was blowing things off, but it was four years of studying and reading and writing and all of these things, and finally coming to this moment where they were going to give me this diploma, like I was going to have a bachelor's degree, and it was going to change my life. And I woke up the next morning, and I put on my apron, and I went and served at Marie Callender's as a bartender, the same thing I had been doing before I got that stupid diploma. I now had a bachelor's degree, but it didn't seem like much was changing. I'm still doing the same thing and honestly not sure what I'm going to do at this point. Now that I have this degree, now I got it in English, so that's probably my fault. <laughs> but what am I going to do with this thing? Here's this diploma on my wall, and I guess I think I just expected that life would be more radically different than what it actually was. I have felt that way about my faith. I have felt like I accepted Christ, I went to church, I've done some Bible studies, I've devoted myself as much as I know how to the Lord, and please just let me go with the image here, don't push this too far. I have my salvation diploma on the wall, but I think I expected more. I kind of thought, well, now that I've got this, like the faith life, it's going to be more radical. It's going to be more transformative. Something else is, and yet in a way, I kind of feel like I'm still just working at Marie Callender's and waiting for the next thing to happen. What's wrong? Now, I may be the only one in the room who feels this way, in which case the rest of this message may bore you. If your faith life is already everything you want it to be, and you already feel like, man, I am just radical for the Lord and things are, then, I don't know, maybe for the sake of the person next to you, just kind of listen and pray or something. But... I want more. Open your Bible, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. 
Ephesians chapter 1. We're at verse 15. And I said last week that verses 3 through 14, they're not typical in Paul's letters. Usually you get the introduction and then he would have jumped down to verse 15 and he would begin giving thanks for the church that he's writing to. That's what we're picking up now. Last week, he puts this section in that describes all of these amazing spiritual blessings that are true of those of us in Christ. And then he starts this part here. Verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now he gets to that normal point. Here's what he's doing. He is really, really thankful for the Ephesians, for their faith. And in particular, I think for Paul, who was made an apostle to the Gentiles by the Lord Jesus, who has spent time in Ephesus. Many years before this, he had spent time in Ephesus. And he, he left them a letter that actually talked about I want you to be on guard so that wolves don't come in and destroy the flock. And instead of the flock being destroyed, the flock has expanded. And so Paul, both his mission to the Gentiles as well as his love for this church, he is excited that they are in Christ. And he is thankful for them. It's very personal. We'll pick up more of this when we get to chapter 3 and he describes some of his calling. But it's not just that he's thankful. He also says... Remembering you in my prayers, Paul is praying for the Ephesians. And I would argue that he's praying regularly based upon the way he describes prayer and the way that he talks about other churches. He's praying regularly for this church. Now, if he is praying for them, go with me on this and I'll show it to you when we get to it, but just trust me on this. It's because something is missing. It's because something isn't what it should be. He is asking God for something for them. And, and here is just, this is what I think is going on. I think in the Ephesian church, they also all got salvation diplomas. And all of their diplomas are on the wall too. And yet, it's not quite what they thought it would be. Something's not quite right. There should be more. And Paul's praying for that. Specifically, here's what he's praying for. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And verse 17 means this in common language. That the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who indwells you, would reveal to you. That's what he's praying for. That the Holy Spirit would reveal to the people of God something. And he's going to describe what that something is. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, and here it is, this is what he's praying for. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Three things 
Paul says this to the Ephesians. I am so thankful for you. I am so thankful that you are in Christ. And I am remembering you in my prayers regularly. And here's what I'm praying for. That the Holy Spirit would reveal to you the hope of your calling. What is the glorious riches of the inheritance that God has in the saints? And what is the immeasurable power toward those who believe? I want you to know those things. And briefly, let me tell you what those things are. Number one, what is the hope to which he has called you? You and I, as he said in the first 11 verses there, 3 through 14, we have been called to something. And here's what Paul is saying. The fact that God has called you, you can expect, you can have a hope that that calling absolutely will come to fruition. That there is a path that God's pulling you along, and there is an absolute future that is written in stone that cannot be changed. You have that. There is a hope because of this calling that God has put on your life. Not only that, and this sounds a little bit strange. In fact, it sounds so strange that some translations flip it a little bit. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, he's already said that we have an inheritance. You and I, as believers, have an inheritance. However, this is not that. This is God's inheritance in us. And it's a glorious one. And just think about that. You are God's inheritance. And he gets glory from that. One of the things I tried to get across in verses 3 through 14 is how valuable you are because God has cared for you. Because he has called you and he's redeemed you and he's forgiven you and he's given you an inheritance, all of these things. But this further, do you know how valuable you are to God that he considers you his inheritance? And there's a glory that God gains because of the work that he's doing in your life. That is something very special for us. But he keeps going. And he's going to go on actually for quite a few verses to describe this. It's as if this becomes his driving. And what is the immeasurable greatness? And everybody knows what immeasurable means, right? You can't measure it. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. All right, the power that God wants to work in the lives of those who believe, it is the same power that took a man who had died and brought him back to life. Not resuscitated him, but brought him back to new life. And set him in the heavens at the right hand of God to rule. That power. Now, Paul wants to describe it more. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, I asked you, do you know what a measurable means? Yet yeah, it can't be measured. Do you know what that means? Let me read it to you one more time. Far above all rule... 
and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Is there anything that is not under the authority of Christ? Nothing. All powers, all dominions, all angelic beings, all demonic beings, everything in this age and in the one to come, it's all under the authority of Christ. And here's the cool part. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. The one that leads us, the one that rules us, the one who's our head, that is the one that has power over all things. He's our leader, our head. How amazing is it to be a part of the church? Not because of a Sunday service. Not because of some bragging rights of, ooh, look, I'm part of the church, which, you know, isn't really anything to brag about anymore in our culture. Woohoo, I'm part of the church. And they're going, why? But because Jesus Christ, who has been raised, who has been seated in the heavenlies, and who has authority over all things, he's our head. He leads us. That is why it's so amazing to be a part of his church. And, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's nothing he's leaving out. The fullness of God is in Christ, and Christ is leading the church. We are his body. The fullness of what God has to offer is being offered in the church what we are a part of. Typically, I would have two or three inspiring illustrations. I would try to make you laugh a little bit. I'd try and make you cry a little bit. I'd try and make you feel. I'd try and make you go, yes! There is nothing that I can say that will help anybody in this room grasp the hope of our calling, what it means to be the glorious inheritance of God, and to know the immeasurable power toward those who believe. There is nothing I can do, which is why I don't have any illustrations for that, because I realize the best I could do would be to get you in a moment to go, yeah, I believe that. And then probably walk out of here, and by the time you get done with lunch, you would have left it behind you at this point. Because the way in which this knowledge makes a difference is not through my stories or my explanations. In fact, it's not through the ways that we typically Think of growing or changing or getting things done. Hey, we are a culture, especially those in this room. I think the next generation, there are things, things that are changing. But for our generation, hey, this is us. Tell me if this doesn't describe us. All right, my children have started taking swimming lessons. And I got to watch them. My youngest is in level one. My second is now in level three. 
you can go all the way up to level 10. There's a whole lot of stuff when it comes to the swim lessons. And level one, they've got him out there in the pool, and he's learning to blow bubbles in the water. That's level one. Like, he's got to be able to eventually go under a few times. My son in level three is learning to do it, lay on his back and, and float. They use toys. They use bells. All kinds of things to inspire these kids. I don't know about you, but there was none of that mamsy-pamsy stuff when I learned how to swim. I remember my swim lesson. Hey, son, come here. This is the deep end. It's deeper than you are tall. Swim. Boom. Splash. Good luck. I mean, that's what we did. Learning to ride a bike was the same thing. Who needed training wheels when you had Band-Aids? <laughs> Go! Boom! Get up! Do it again! We are so good at muscling our way through things. And that's what we do, right? If it's going to be done, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to put some effort into it. You can't do that for this. It won't work. You, you can't you can't do more Bible studies and think it's going to happen. You can't just will, okay, hope, 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 hope. That won't do it either. And this is the problem. On one side, many of us, we like to put our backs into it. We want to accomplish something. We want to get it done. And, and that doesn't work. And so we don't even know what to do. On the other side, and some people on this room are looking at the other side going, wait, you're just telling us to be passive? You're telling us just not to do anything. Like, that's not going to accomplish anything. That's what people do now. All right, I'm going to tell you there is a place we need to put our muscles into. It's just not what we tend to think. There's only one place that this comes from. One place, the Spirit. We, what Paul is doing right here is he is praying for the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened, that they would know this hope, this value, and this power in ways that they cannot know without the Spirit revealing it. They cannot get it just from a study. They cannot get it just because somebody tells it to them. Paul's already told it to them but he's still praying for it, right? And I want, to, I want to give you a glimpse of what I believe it looks like, what that life looks like to actually have a deepened understanding of this hope and value and power in our lives so that we can live out of it. Right? Here's an image. The Apostle Paul was in Lystra, and he's preaching the gospel. And as he's preaching the gospel, he's having some success. And there are some there that don't want him to have success. And so they persuade the crowds against Paul. And the crowds pick up stones and they stone him. Then that beat up body that has now been stoned, they grab that body and they drag him out of the city and they drop him. And then they go back into Lystra. Some of the disciples hear about it, and so they come, and they surround the body, and they're there with Paul. 
And Paul gets up and says, let's go back into the city. And he preaches the gospel some more to them. And this is normal. Paul gets thrown into prison. When he gets thrown into prison, he shares with the jailer and he sings praise songs. There's a description in 2 Corinthians that says that Paul has been shipwrecked and he's been beaten and he's starved. He's been thrown into prison. And this is the same guy that's talking about, yeah, rejoice in everything. This is the guy that writes the letter of Philippians, which is all about joy, while he's in prison. And he has no idea if he's going to get out. How do, you, how do you have that? How can faith be that way? Because Paul has some deep understanding of his calling, of his value, and of the power that is in God, and he's living out of it so that he looks at everything else differently. Now, you may say, well, that's Paul. I mean, of course. Like, he wrote a bunch of the New Testament. Of course, Paul's going to be like that. I want to tell you a different story. In 1521, a baby girl was born named Anne Askew. Anne would live to be 26 years old. She was born into a wealthy family. She got a good education. Not all women at that stage in history was getting good education. She got a good education. She knew her Bible well. But she was thrown into a difficult situation. Terrible marriage, lost kids in infancy. Eventually, her husband, they, they, he kicked her out, but wouldn't get a divorce, so wouldn't make it legal for her. She would be arrested twice. Second time would be because her husband actually sent the authorities after her to arrest her. She was friends with the queen of England, and here was the main issue against her. She was way too Protestant. During this time in England, it was dangerous to be too Protestant or too Catholic. Uh, there kind of is a middle road here. She was far too Protestant, especially when it came to what communion meant. So she is arrested, and the second time that she is arrested, she is taken to the Tower of London. She is the only female to have been put on the rack. You know what the rack is, where they tie you like this and they pull you apart. And the reason they were torturing her is because they wanted her to reveal the others that believed like she did. And some think especially the queen. They were trying to get high up. She would not give them anything. They finally, she was, her body was so messed up from all of this, she couldn't walk. They carried her back to her cell. And on June 18th, today, 1526, 1546, they condemned her to die by burning. She had one month to sit in that cell before the actual execution. And all of her pain... She still does not recant, and nobody comes to rescue her. Like, she's got friends in high places. Nobody comes to rescue her. She does not give up on God. In fact, this poem by her, 
And I'm only going to read a little portion of it. This describes some of what this woman was like. Like the armed knight appointed to the field, with this world will I fight, and faith shall be my shield. Faith is that strong weapon which will not fail at need. My foes, therefore, among therewith will I proceed. As it is had in strength and force of Christ's way, it will prevail at length, though all the devils say nay. I now rejoice in heart and hope bid me do so, for Christ will take my part and ease me of my woe. Yet, Lord, I thee desire, for that they do to me, let them not taste their hire, which is the word wage, of their iniquity. This little girl believed so deeply that nothing could get in the way of her faith. And here is what she said over and over again to friends and family. It's been quoted by her. Pray, pray, pray. I have one message this morning. We aren't called to that faith life that we keep wondering, is there not more to this? We are called to more. But the kind of life that Paul was living, the kind of life that Anne lived, the kind of life that we could just line up names of people, it doesn't come out of a greater willpower from us. It doesn't come out of just somehow, I'm going to get up the one morning, I'm not going to force myself to do more. Nor am I saying, just sit back and go study the Bible more and don't do anything. I'm not saying that either. There is one place that we are called to muscle. Prayer. We are called to pray. We are called to ask for the revelation of the Spirit of what the truth of all of these blessings that we have. I mean, here's the thing. Many of us think we need more. Many of us are praying for something else. The prayer of Paul is not that you need more. The prayer is to understand what it is we already have, which is just not sunk down for most of us because it requires the Spirit to do it. Now, I'm going to be honest. Maybe you can relate to this because I've been doing this all week. It's hard for me to just keep praying. Holy Spirit, reveal this to me. I want to know this truth. I want to live out of this truth. Help me to understand my calling in a way that only you can. Because honestly, once I've prayed it once, it's really hard to keep doing it. I kind of feel a little, especially by the fourth or fifth time. But Paul talks about praying unceasingly to keep going to keep believing, to keep asking. And early church fathers, through the desert fathers, up through the Middle Ages, there was a teaching that part of our spirituality is the persistence in the very things that we think are doing nothing. And the very things that are so hard for us to keep going because we feel ridiculous or we don't feel like there's an answer and that in the process of doing that, 
God grows us. We are called to continue to pray, to ask the Spirit to reveal what only the Spirit can do, to enlighten the eyes of our heart that we might know these things. And I think it is something kind of along these lines. Before we had our first child, but when Aaron was pregnant, and probably first-time parents, we all did this, we read about what it is like to be a parent. We picked up books on like, okay, what do I do, you know, in month one and month two and month three, and, and, and we read this trying to understand what it's like to be a parent. And then you have your kid. And those books were helpful. I mean, they really were. But the first time that my daughter peed all over me, my daughter, not my son. I mean, the books talk about boys doing that. But the first time my daughter did, I'm like, ah, the book didn't talk about that. What do I do now? And, and since then, there have been so many things that the book didn't explain that. Like, I, that's not, I don't understand what I'm doing at this point. But I've grown in a knowledge of how to raise my kids that I'm not sure any book could ever give me. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to sound heretical. The depth of the knowledge that God wants us to have of the hope of our calling, of what it means to be the inheritance of God, of what it means to have this immeasurable power at work, it cannot come through a book alone. Even the Bible. You can read it over and over and over and over again. But without the enlightening of the Spirit, it will not be all that it can be. It will not allow us to live out of the way that God wants us to live out of it. Because it takes the power of the Spirit. Church, we need to pray. We need to ask. And it needs to be consistent. Because that is one of the ways that God is working. And it will take something from us. If I asked you to raise your hand right now, and I won't, do you have a regular prayer life? I would guess that quite a few of us do not. That there's not a regular, consistent prayer life for us. But we're called to it. And it is the way that God works. Pray, pray, pray. That was what she kept saying to people. Paul says it. Jesus assumes it. We just need to do it. After my diploma didn't work, I decided to get another one. I mean, you know, if that one didn't work, why not just go get more education? That, that ought to do something, right? That ought to get me somewhere. Don't stop reading your Bible. Don't stop doing good works. When we reach Ephesians chapter 2, you were saved for good works. 
Don't stop doing good works. However, do not believe that just because you do more of either one of those things, that you are necessarily going to understand what only the Spirit can reveal. Just because you do more, which by the way is easier, it was much easier for me just to go get another degree. I mean, go do more classes and stuff. It's much easier to go to a Bible study. But we need to seek the Spirit. Seek the Spirit. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Let the knowledge of all of the blessings we looked at last week, of everything that God in Christ is doing for us now, the calling, the value, the power, let it sink in to our hearts and our minds and our wills and our emotions, every part of us, in a way that is spiritual, that can overtake us, that there can be a supernatural life right in the midst of this world and all of its struggles. Help us to be those people for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the glory of God the Father. Amen.